My name is Peter Lyon. I am the campus minister, uh, the new campus minister at Christopher Newport University. When I was asked to, to share from the Word with you guys this morning, um, I thought the Psalms would be a wonderful place to go because it gives us a chance to reacquaint ourselves with wonder, uh, an opportunity to reignite our wonder and our worship for our God. Because in the midst of wonder, we do recognize it's a beautiful thing. So let's turn today to Psalm 135. We'll read from that and we'll, we'll wonder at our God together. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the cloud to rise at the end of the earth and makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth from the wind his storehouses, from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations, killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of the Lord, house of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms which encourage our hearts to sing. I pray, Lord, that as I teach from your word that I would say true things that your Holy Spirit would move. That it would not be the words of my mouth that move hearts, but it would be the Spirit of the Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give us attentive ears and hearts to listen and change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this psalm, there's sort of these bookends on the other side, and then there's a sort of you know meat in the middle. And the bread on the outside is this encouragement. And it's getting easy to, to kind of to rush past these things as it's, you know, as it's saying, oh, house of Aaron, praise the Lord. And, you know, praise the name, all his servants. But I think what you'll see is if you look at that, there's this progression. And before we get into the meat, it's worth seeing this. You know, it's very easy for us in scripture to read things for other people. To read this passage as like, oh, this is, this is good. I wish so-and-so would hear this. But if you look at the bread of like kind of on this sandwich, if you look at the, the intro and the outro, what we see in the progression inward and the progression outward, you know, into the temple courts and out to all the people is that the Lord is saying, be you kind of a holy, like 
high level servant or are you just you a member of the people of God? Whether you're in the Holy of Holies or you're out in the courts, all of this is good for you. And our tendency will be as we talk about worship and we talk about idolatry to think about other peoples. But in broadening this, you know, up and down sort of the ladder, you know, to the pinnacle and to the width, it's saying this is, this is essential for all of us. This is important for all of us to hear. And with that said, we get to the meat of the argument of sort of what is this psalmist singing about? And it's a comparison, and it breaks down into two questions. Is God worthy to be worshipped, or are the idols of the nations worthy to be worshipped? Those are the two things we're going to to look at today, to, to ask ourselves today. So let's start with this first question. Is God worthy to be worshipped? And as we begin to address this, where does the psalmist start? Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. In the seas and all the deeps, he makes the clouds to rise. He makes lightnings. He brings forth wind from his storehouses. And I think as we read these passages, it's worth, it's worth pushing on our hearts to maintain a little wonder. It's very easy to sort of read these older, ancient texts and to sort of dryly analyze what we know about clouds and lightning and things like that. But we have to really let the imagery of the Psalms work. Don't kind of put yourself aside or out of them like, that's not how lightning works. <laughs> you, can, you can tell me the science for lightning and all those things, but if you stand in the presence of it, I don't know how anyone's been a little too close to lightning before. I remember sitting at a river house with my wife under a tin roof and lightning struck the house and we could feel the air change, feel the electricity in the air. It's terrifying. The power of it. The the terrifying wonder of it. You can't disenchant lightning for me. You can't take that, that sort of sense of, of magic, of power. What the Lord has made and controls is sovereign over. What he commands at his will is stunning. I love to sometimes just sit by the ocean and stare out into the vastness of it. To feel the power of those things. Don't Make this dry. Hear in the poetry the power of the Lord. The wonder of the Lord. These things that we have no control, no power over, he moves as part of his daily ritual, his daily chores, if you will. It's so easy for us to disenchant the wonderful things we see each day to lose the wonder and the beauty. I don't know if you've ever been to an ancient city. I I got to visit my brother when he was studying in Rome. And it's wild to watch people just sipping their coffee next to a 2,500-year-old basilica and not look once up at it. No matter, you know, these ancient buildings and temples and beautiful things you can grow numb to. 
If you do not will yourself to wonder, you will grow numb to this world. But why does the psalmist tell us to wonder? Why is wonder such an important thing? Because, first of all, it's a source of joy. To see the beauty and the power of the Lord is is a joyful thing. I remember briefly after moving down here in June, my son Wesley, who's six years old, was up in his room. He takes forever to fall asleep. He's running amok up there. And I'm going up there for like the fifth time that night to just be like, hey, buddy, time to calm down. And I enter his room and he's sitting by the window and he goes, dad, 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 come over and look at the fireflies with me. And we just stop. And we stare out on our front yard. We've been, living in, we've been living in Richmond for the last three years. Not a lot of fireflies around in the city. Just looking out at our big front yard, watching the fireflies all kind of dance in the front yard. And we just sat silent for five minutes watching them. And it was beautiful. And it was wonderful. To look out at the things that the Lord has made is a source of joy. What does wonder do for us when we allow ourselves to be kind of overwhelmed by the majesty of the things that the Lord has made, the evidence of his goodness? It's humbling. It's humbling to stare out at the wind and the waves. It's humbling to to see lightning strike. It's humbling even to see the beauty of the lightning bugs rising up out of the grass. Say, the Lord made this. He orchestrates this. He made something beautiful and it is good. Wonder leads us to worship. It leads us in our daily, in our hourly worship to come to God and say, wow, you are good. You are beautiful. It's important for our heart. And we're going to see that's important as we think about what are the other things that capture our heart. Are we wondering at God? Because there's another aspect of the character and the nature of God that this psalm wants us to remember. Is God worthy to be worshipped? We get to the the next section, beginning in verse 8. It was he who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Mighty kings who gave us our land as, as a heritage. It's the Lord who vindicates his people, who has compassion on his people. So psalmist retells the story of Israel. We get a different side of the Lord. It's important, you know, sometimes if you're not super familiar with the referenced stories here, it's worth knowing them. The Lord took the people of Israel, who were not a noteworthy people, who were a people of slaves, a humble people. And because they were a humble people, not because there was anything special about them, he used them to demonstrate his power, that he could free them from Egypt, which was the superpower of the age, by his strength alone. You know, Israel didn't win some rebellion against Egypt. God sent plagues and wonders the point of even striking down the firstborn child of everyone, including the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. 
He defeated their army in battle when Israel did not have a single weapon through the power of opening and closing the Red Sea. Then he takes this same people and he brings them into the land. A land of established peoples with strong cities, with strong kings that they had no power to defeat. God gave them that land. Though they doubted and feared constantly, though they rebelled against God constantly, though they were unfaithful, God was faithful and strong. He was more than powerful enough to defeat the kingdoms of this world. Israel was not able, but God was. God is both a wonderful God, capable of great beauty, and he is a powerful God capable of making his power felt in tangible ways. You know, throughout the story of Israel, there's a lot of stories of Israel's fear. Who and what Israel is afraid of. And there's a proverb that begins, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Throughout their history, Israel consistently fears other things more than they fear God. They fear the people of the land. And after God has just defeated Egypt, a much more powerful nation, are too afraid to enter into the land. And so the Lord says, very well, you won't. I'll bring your children into the land and you can die in the wilderness. Israel consistently fears the other nations. They fear other gods. They fear that they don't have a king like the other nations that can lead them. Their fear calculus is often wrong. They fail to look at the power of the Lord and recognize that if he is for them, what do they have to fear? Fear is a simple kind of measure of of like what what we believe has power over us, right? There is a sense that in its rawest form, fear itself is worship. When we are afraid of something, we give that thing power over our lives. We serve it. Our thoughts are dominated by it. And so as we ask ourselves this question, as we frame this first part of this question, and before we move on, we have to see, the Lord is both worthy to be worshipped for his goodness, the majesty of what he makes and controls, the way he moves, what he creates. But if that is not enough for you, there's the raw reality that the God God we worship is powerful. The things that we would give power over our lives, well, God can defeat those things easily. What about our idols? What about the idols of the nations? How do we know that our God is the one to be worshipped? Let's look at the second part of this. You know, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And it's worth asking ourselves the question, like, what do we, what do we want to worship? 
What do our hearts want to worship besides God? Why wouldn't we worship this God? And it's worth looking here in this. The, you know, it can be, if you're familiar with the text of the Old Testament, if you're familiar with you know, reading the Bible, that, that idea of like, oh, silver and gold, the work of human hands, it can sort of just kind of rote, read it, move through it. But listen to this. Like, look, the idols of this world are beautiful things. They're well-made, well-crafted things. Our idols, the things we want to worship, the things we desire to give our hearts to look really good and look really precious. And that's why it's really worthwhile for us, I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, to make sure that we are examining our own hearts as we go through this psalm. We're doing this ourselves because it's very easy to compare and to criticize. You know, if somebody is longing after something that looks precious to them, but it doesn't look precious to you, it's very easy to stand in judgment. I'm like, well, that looks really foolish. I used to do youth ministry uh, for, I did it for many, many years as a volunteer and then on staff. And it was a constant battle between parents and their teenagers because what was precious, precious to parents and teenagers are very different things. Teenagers, it could be any number of popularity, you know, the thrill, you know, just chasing emotional high, all kinds of things. Some of them good things, some of them exciting things, some of them weird things. What was precious to their parents? Them. So their parents would see them trying to do some ridiculous thing on a bike and be like, oh my gosh, why why would you even try that? You're endangering the most precious thing to me. So often it was just a communication issue. It's very easy to criticize uh, what is precious to other people. And and in a sense there, recognizing that, recognizing that, like, and recognizing that something is precious to you, that doesn't make it something that you worship. Like, my children are very precious to me. You know, what is the line between something being beautiful, being good? I mean, the psalmist pointed us to a lot of beautiful, wonderful things and how those things led us to worship God. How does something being precious, being beautiful, move into the realm of worship, idolatry? You know, gold and silver aren't idols in and of themselves. You know, even you, you, you listen, you know, we, we often misquote and we say money is the root of all evil, but that's not what Scripture says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Love out of proportion is the means in which something precious becomes something we worship. When we love something for more than what it is. The first part of this would, would encourage us to see the created world as signposts to the goodness of God. When we begin to love the created thing, though, and long, and long for it, and long for it more, then we love God. That's when something becomes an idol. You know, in the story of Israel, there's a, there's a, famous, there's a famous moment in which they create an idol. They create this golden calf. And the story that Aaron, the brother of Moses, says is like, we just threw the gold in the fire and it became a calf. No, Aaron. That's not what happened. You had to shape it. You had to mold it. You had to craft it. You had to spend time and love and precious like effort on it. 
when that thing that is precious in our heart kind of begins to occupy all those minutes between, all those moments, when we start to give our sort of wandering heart and time over to things and we start to craft and shape. It could be something as simple as a hobby we play, you know. It could be something, you know, it could be something as, as, as dear to us as our own children. When you start to spend every waking moment thinking about them, only about them, when their success and failure becomes the means by which you will justify yourself. That's you shaping the idol in your heart. And just think about this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Idols are not cheap things to make. They're not made of driftwood. You know, they're not made of scrap metal. They are made of precious and rare things. They are costly to make. Do you want, you're like, I, I, this is probably true of me, but where, I, I, how can I find where the idols of my heart are? How can I find where these things are that I worship? I would uh, encourage you to look where your effort and your time is being spent. You know, we used to do this illustration with like student leaders where we would like have this little clock object lesson. It's like divide up your clock in the day. Like what gets the most of your time? And he was like, oh, I'm spending way more time on this than I thought. You know, hoping like, oh, my phone, that's, that's taking all my attention. Well, the clever students started to know even too that if they put something too obvious there, if they actually revealed the thing, they'd have to talk about it and then I'd know about it. So hey, the first step of like, hey, what are those things in our heart? There are the things that take time. But then even there, like, what are you willing to protect at all cost? What are you willing to lie about? Like that student shaping like only one hour on my phone, not five. What are you willing to change and lie about? What would we conceal? What would we make our lives more difficult to protect? What do we rearrange our lives for? Nothing says it has power over us like the power to move everything else in our life, right? But it's worth examining. What does making these idols do to us? What does the crafting of idols do? You know, what does the psalmist say? They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The making of idols makes us mute, blind, deaf. And if you didn't catch that, there is no breath in their mouths. Dead. Breath is the, sense, is, the, is the evidence of life. And this order is not accidental, I wouldn't say. If you look at the pattern, if you look at the story of something kind of capturing your heart, what's the first thing you don't do? You don't talk about it. You don't talk about how important it is to you. You, kind of be, you become mute to it. You're aware that it's there, that it maybe is takes too much of your time, your thoughts, your heart, your love. You don't talk about it. Well, eventually, as you don't talk about it, you become blind to it. 
You can't even see that something is beginning to control and dominate your loves. That in your life you're serving that thing and then eventually you become deaf when other people would even tell you. When they would confront you and say, this thing in your life, it owns and controls you. Until finally it cuts you off from that which would keep you alive. The reality that it offers you no hope of life comes to fruition. And your trust in these things leads to death. And so we see these things. We have the idols of our hearts and of the nations. They're beautiful, they're precious. But their only power is to cut us off and to kill us. They will slowly take more and more of our heart till we die. And then we have the testimony of the psalmist about the Lord who makes and controls everything in this world, who is powerful over the most powerful kingdoms and whose name endures forever who will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And how do we know this? Now, here's the fun part about this. The psalmist is basing this on what he has seen of the Lord. How the Lord has been faithful to Israel. How he has redeemed Israel out of every danger. Church, how much more do we know about the faithfulness of the Lord? We get the fun of reading this psalm knowing even more about his power to vindicate us. Because we know about Jesus. We know that the Lord does not stop only at the intervention and earthly power, but would send his own son to live and to die for us. To bear the cost of our idolatry. To rescue us from the death that we are choosing. And through the power of his resurrection, through his conquest of death, welcome us into life more clearly than even the psalmist realizes, highlighting the difference between these two things. The worship of the Lord leads to life. His name endures forever. And he welcomes us through the power of Jesus, through the power of the resurrection, into that eternity. That his goodness, his power endures and we are welcomed as children of God to live, endure, to worship. What did we read in the catechism? To glorify God and enjoy him, not just now, but forever. We can choose the glittering thing that makes us mute, blind, deaf, and dead. Church, I would warn you, this decision seems so obvious on the surface, but it happens in increments. We give our heart away in small compartments, bit by bit. The warning I would offer is that we do not just consciously and blindly choose to say like, you know what, I'm going to chase success in business over eternal life. I'm going to chase political power over eternal life. I'm going to chase the success of my children and my family over eternal life. No, these things happen bit by bit. 
we give away a few hours of our day at a time. And we need to be reminded that Christ did not just die for one sphere of our life that's this like worship sphere of our life, but everything we do, all that we have, each moment of our day is an act of worship. And that to cut something off, to say, well, this part, you know, to be a good businessman, I got to be this, and the rest of my time I'll be Christian, is to prune that off the tree. It's like, I'm going to, you think you might just be compartmentalizing, setting up different gardens, but you are cutting that thing off from life. Cut flowers die quickly off the plant. You can prune and you can shape, but your spiritual life is not just one plant in your garden. It is the roots. It is the soil. It is everything. Christ is the sun that nourishes. And if you cut off any part of your life from that, you are dooming it to death. All of our heart. All of our lives, everything inside of us is worthy of worship, is, is worth giving to this worthy God. Our attempts to cut those things off, to move them over here, to have them for ourselves, our attempts that just like in the garden with Adam and Eve, an attempt to control, to be like God, to have this thing that is ours, that is wholly ours, but that which is wholly ours and separated from the God who creates and sustains the universe is to doom that thing to death. I'm saying this a lot, but it's worth repeating. Instead of imitating our first father and our first mother in their pursuit of death, we should instead imitate Christ who demonstrates perfect obedience He is both our savior and our example. By the power of his death and resurrection, he has modeled. He has shown us. He has empowered us without his death and resurrection. We are powerless to do anything. We are enslaved to these things that we we have given our hearts over to. But he has freed us and he has shown us the path of life. The imitation of Christ, the worship of God in all things is not just for some, for like professional Christians. It's good for all. And this is good news. This is, this is not me heaping expectation and law on you, but I'm saying it is more good than you can expect from God. This is grace. That there are not just parts of your life that you need to give over to death, but parts of your life that can be alive through the grace of God. That there are no hours of your day that are empty, hollow, worthless hours. But each hour of your day can be alive in the worship of God. There are moments for wonder and joy where we least expect them. Just like the fireflies outside my son's window. In those moments, if your heart is able, where you're least expecting them, the Lord can break wonder into your life. There are opportunities to rejoice in the goodness of God available to us all. If we just accept the humility, there's a humbling nature of wonder, right? The childlikeness that's required to experience it and to worship God from it. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good. That in all things, in all times, in all moments of our life, there is wonder to be had at the goodness and the power of God. That the things that we see that are beautiful and powerful in this world, that we might chase over, that we might give parts of our life to, Lord, that those things, oh, they will leave us hollow, empty, breathless, Lord. Lord, help us to see in the beautiful and the wonderful things of this world, not things to be worshipped for themselves, but signposts of our beautiful creator and savior. Lord, help us to love you the way, oh, the way you deserve, Lord. Help us to wonder in glory, to rejoice in your goodness all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.